Hi everyone and welcome to the Parma Podcast. Great to be with you all again. Um, I'm James Prescott, your host, and I'm delighted to be joined today um, by one of my favourite people, Ali Fallon. Um, welcome. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, and uh, Ali is an author and a coach and a speaker. Um, she's about to release her new book, Indestructible. Um, and um, we're going to be talking about that today and the story behind the book. Um, I can definitely recommend Alison's writing to you. She's a great writer. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing this story because it's a powerful story. So tell us a bit about um, the background to to this book and yeah, the story behind it. Yeah, sure. So the book is called Indestructible. The subtitle is Leveraging Your Broken Heart to Become a Force of Love and Change in the World. And it's a really personal story for me. It's the story of my marriage and divorce. And really bigger than that, it's the story of what happens when your life takes a giant left turn and turns out nothing like you thought it was going to. So um, the most of the book really is about what it's like to recover from that experience. And it could be any experience. It doesn't have to be a divorce, but it could be um, you know, the loss of a loved one or the loss of a job or a career or a, any sort of major left turn. I think all of us can resonate with that feeling of having a, a total heartbreak and having to piece back together your life after losing what you thought was everything to you. So that's really what the story is about. And um, it's about, you know, the, like a woman finding her voice again and finding her footing again after, um, what felt like a real tragedy and the strength that comes from that so that's it's been neat even though it's such a personal story I mean I would tell people after the book was finished it feels like the longest love letter I've ever written and it's been neat to hear the few people who have gotten to read the exclusive pre-release copy really resonate with the story even though it's such a personal story for me um, it's been cool to hear them say you know I couldn't stop reading over the whole thing in one sitting uh, I can so identify and so resonate with that feeling, of, you know, being in that place. So it's been really cool. So tell us a bit about the story. I mean, what what was it that actually happened? Obviously, because I mean, we want to be sensitive about what we talk about. But um, I know you give me yeah. a bit of permission to ask certain questions. So um, just tell us, kind of, what what was it that happened? I mean, obviously, it's about the end of your marriage. Yeah. But how did that come about? Yeah. So. Um, and I talk pretty openly about this. I mean, there are a couple things that for legal reasons I can't say, but I, um, I have also written pretty publicly and openly about it that the marriage ultimately ended because I uncovered some information that made me realize that there was a lot I didn't know that was going on behind the scenes. So, um, you know, I can leave that to the listener's imagination. <laughs> you can imagine what I might have found. Um, but ultimately what's interesting to me is that that was really the breaking point for me to help me make the decision that I had wanted to make all along, uh, which was the marriage had been not going well the entire time I was in it. And I felt partly because of, uh, the commitment that I had made to my ex-husband on our wedding day and partly because of the way that I had been raised and partly because of my personality I felt a lot of loyalty to him and to the relationship that we had together and really, really wanted to make the marriage work. Um, so I had been fighting to make it work. But um, the, I think the thing for me that I realized after I had some date space and distance from it was that the relationship had been pretty abusive all along. And so 
um, there, it, it just—I think it's interesting. One of the things that's fascinating to me is that I couldn't see that while I was in it. I was having a hard time seeing things for the way that they really were until I had some space and distance from it. And it was this moment of finding the information that felt like to me worst possible case scenario that actually was the moment that opened my eyes to see how things really work. And I think this is really true for all of us, no matter where we are in our lives. The moment when the thing happens that you think this is the worst possible thing that could ever happen is so often the opportunity, the invitation to begin to see things the way that they always happen. It's this moment of recalibration. It's like breaking a bone to reset it, breaking it again for the second time to reset it. It's painful, it's awful, it's horrible, it's nobody that you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. And at the same time, I couldn't have gotten where I was trying to go without that that moment. So um, I now can look back on that moment with gratitude. At the time that it happened, I didn't feel any gratitude for it at all. I felt I was in shock, I was, um, you know, totally like floored, betrayed, um, you know, a thousand things. <laughs> it's been a long process of coming, you know, coming around and, and realizing it was really the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Mm. Yeah, I, I really, I really resonate with all of that um, myself. Um, yeah, been on a bit of a journey myself, dealing with a lot of stuff from my trauma from my childhood, which I'd never dealt with. For twenty mm-hmm. years, um, yeah. So what you're saying resonates a lot with me. Um, yeah. and, look, and I'll add too because I've done a lot of teaching and reading on. Um, Don Miller is a really good friend of mine and has been a mentor, both as a friend and as a writer. He's been a mentor to me, and you know he talks a lot about story and how stories work. And he has a company called Story Brand, and I've done some teaching for them and. Um, one of the things, the aspects of storytelling that I find so compelling that has a strong parallel to our lives is that heroes of stories don't act unless they're forced. We don't make a change in our life unless, unless something or someone requires us to make a change. Mm. And to me, that's a powerful lesson. You know, if you, when you start watching stories, you realize that there has to be some sort of inciting incident or there has to be some sort of guiding character who pushes the hero to the story to act or they don't act. Of course they don't, because what you've been doing has been vaguely, even if it's been vaguely working for you, even if it's not really working the way that you want it to work, until you've got something or someone, some reason that you have to step out and do it a different way, you won't. And so I think what this does for us is it just helps us to reframe these moments of total discomfort in our lives when it's like, this is the worst. I hate this. I wish this wasn't happening. I wish I had more money. I wish I that this hadn't happened to me. I wish this person wasn't in my life. I wish this person was in my life. I wish that I hadn't lost a parent. I wish I hadn't been abused. I wish I hadn't, you know, had that experience, whatever, fill in the blank. So often those just those same experiences that are they are terrible, they are awful, they are frustrating, they are obstacles, yes. And also they are opportunities for us to step into all of the growth and power and freedom that, and joy that has been waiting for us. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Um, so, what, so what was the first thing that you did when you, just, you, know, you knew your marriage was ending, mm-hmm. that you had to go? Um, what was the first step that you, that you took um, mm-hmm. to, to break free from that? 
Well, two things. Number one, and both were sort of impulsive, meaning I didn't, I didn't really think through them. When you're in a moment like that, of a traumatic moment, you're just acting on impulse for the most part. But looking back, they were smart things to do. The number one thing is I got out. I just, I literally, I mean, so literally picked up my keys, grabbed my bag, <laughs> took my dog, got in the car, and got the hell out. So I just got in the car and drove. I didn't know where I was going at first, but I went straight to a friend's house. And um, when I got to a friend's house, that's when I did the second thing that is that was really important for me to do. And that is I told the truth for the first time. It was the first time I heard myself saying things that I had never said to anybody before about the relationship. So I heard myself saying things like, um, well, I'm just telling stories about things that have been going on behind closed doors for a long time that I haven't never talked to anybody about. And the power in speaking the truth for the first time it was a slow unfolding for me too, because like I said, I was so out of touch. I was, I think I was traumatized and in denial and all kinds of things and trying to make my marriage work. But as I started to tell the stories about what was actually happening, um, that was when I started to get the feedback I needed in order to make the choices I wanted to make. And the feedback was things like, this is not normal. This is not okay that you're being treated this way. What's happening is not okay. It's not normal. That would never happen in my marriage. Stuff like that. It's just like I needed context that um, – I didn't have otherwise until I started speaking the truth. And I think there's a lesson here for all of us that, and I don't mean to like trivialize this into little lessons, but a lesson that a lot of times we don't talk about what's going on in our life because we're afraid that um, of being judged or we're afraid of being exposed or we're afraid of being embarrassed or whatever. When again, so often it's those moments of saying like, this is my experience. Does this match your experience? The great fear was that people were going to say, no, that doesn't match my experience, when actually that was what I most needed. <laughs> I needed someone to be like, that's not normal. That would never happen. You know, that would never happen to me. So um, once that, once I had that feedback, it was like, again, part of the recalibration, things could begin to normalize, and I could start to go, Okay, now I can make a decision based on having all of the information rather than what I was doing before, which is making a decision without the information. Mm. There, is such, <laughs> there is such a power, isn't there, in sharing our stories with other people. Um, mm. When you finally actually tell your story publicly, or to, or even just to one person, when you've never yeah. said it before, it just suddenly it becomes real in a sense, doesn't it? For sure. Mm. Um, and so, what did you? So, what did you do? Also, you moved out, and you you spoke to your uh, your friend who you, you mm-hmm. wanted, needed to speak to about about. I it. didn't move out right away. Actually, I, I don't know if I misconstrued that. I just left the house immediately when I found what I found. I left the house immediately, but I actually eventually ended up coming. I didn't. I think, if I remember correctly, I didn't stay there that night. It's hard to remember exactly, but I, I, when I did come back, I asked him to leave, and he did eventually leave house so then I stayed in the house that's just just in order to get the details to the story true Mm. to real life I just felt like I needed to say that Mm. so I didn't I left the house in the moment but eventually did ask him to leave the house and I stayed in the house right 
Okay, so what? So, kind of okay. Once you'd kind of decided it was time to end the marriage, okay. and, and after the immediate kind of reaction, what were the kind of big steps that you knew you needed to take to kind of start rebuilding your life after that? Um. Well, so the the biggest piece was financial, which I think would be true for anybody, but I think especially for women. You know, I've, I, since I've been through this process, I've wondered, I've met a lot of women who have been through divorce and who have children and are staying home with their children and, you know, for, for obvious reasons, um, can't work a full-time job, not in the traditional sense, without spending a bunch of money on daycare and are wrestling with that dynamic. And I actually can't, I can't remember really how, it was so hard to do it even just on my own. We didn't have any children. I can't remember how hard it would be. Or women to do that with children as well. So, um, but the financial piece—it's funny because I talk a lot about uh, how I've reinvented. How do I don't want to say that? Not reinvented. That's the wrong word. I've done a lot of work around my finances, rerouting negative stories I have about finances, and that are that are like deeply ingrained from a very young age that are. They're just neurological pathways like anything else that when we find ourselves in the same financial rut over and over and over again, like if you're constantly broke, more often than not, that's as much energetic as it is practical. Meaning money is a tangible, practical thing. Yes, it's a resource that you need in order to access, you know, um, to pay your rent, <laughs> to pay your, your uh, utility bill, et cetera, et cetera. Like that's a real need. And also, so much of what's dictating our choices around money and what gets us into the same place we've been over and over again is an old story we've told ourselves about how money works and what money means and what money is to us. So all that to say, although I do a ton of teaching about that, I believe that through and through to my bones um, because I've watched the dramatic change I've seen in my financial life since I put those new stories into practice. At the same time, I recognize that you flip that coin over and on the other side, there is this very practical thing that when you're going through a divorce, you now have, you know, um, my ex-husband and I had a business together, so my access to, like, my salary was being paid through the business, so that's gone. I've got to figure out a different way to make money. Um, I had to pay a, a giant chunk of money to an attorney in order to facilitate the divorce process. Um, we're now living in two separate locations, whereas we were sharing the cost of, of, you know, our mortgage together. So it just complicates everything. It's the money thing was a big piece. Of it. I, it was, it's just a thing I had to get figured out. Um, so to answer your question, the money thing was the big, that was the biggest thing on my mind at first. I had to figure out a way to, to just make my life work. And it was sort of, it's funny because now when I look back, I think there was something sort of special about, it didn't feel super special at the time, but, but now looking back, it feels like there was something special about the, um, like the, what's the word? Um, the immediacy of it. Like I just needed to get through the day. I just needed to make $250 so that I could pay XYZ bill by midnight tonight and that was all I needed to do. I just needed to get up. I needed to get out of bed. I needed to figure out a way to make a little bit of money. And then I needed to go to sleep. 
And it was kind of like, it's a win if you get up, you get out of bed, you get in the shower, you get yourself dressed, you get out of the house, like major win, you know? And now life is different and things get more complicated. And um, there was a simplicity, I guess is what I'm saying, to the worst case scenario-ness of it. It's like the drama of the moment. There's a sort of simplicity to that. I mean, it's not, it doesn't feel great while you're in it, but now when I look back at it, I just think like, what a what a um, trying time that was, and also what a simple time. It was just so simple. Um, mm. So anyway, I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. It really is interesting. You, sometimes you don't see things until until afterwards, do you? You don't. Mm. You know, like, I yeah with with me, I. Yeah, I mean, I look at the, the, the journey I've been on, and I'm not going to go too much into that because this is about you, but um, I look back um, 18 months ago, and it's like, it feels like a decade ago. You know, it's yeah the, the change that's happened in that time. Yeah. Um, and I guess it's the same with you in terms of just a couple of years ago, you know. That's true. Um, so, okay, so you'd kind of moved on and you know you had to start again financially had to start again in terms of what what you were doing with your life what you were going to do um and obviously you were already a writer and you had already done a had a few books and done a bit of speaking and things so where, where did that all kind of start what was it like to start over again um well yeah i mean to your point i wasn't starting over from scratch because thankfully i did have um a lot of skills. That was why I always tell people when you're in worst case scenario, you have to look at what you have. Okay, you have a few things. You don't have everything. Didn't have any resources, <laughs> but I had a few things. I had skills. I had connections. I had friends who had connections, and I just used the few things I had to start piecing together something that would work. And again, the this the worst case scenario ness of the moment makes you it it shatters your ego. So you've got nothing left to lose. There's the sweetness of it is like, okay, I mean, what, what, how could things get worse? So I guess I'll just try this. So that was what I did in the beginning was just taking the skills I had and putting them to work and seeing if I could make a few hundred bucks here and there, you know, I mean, it's like calling friends and saying, saying one, you know, one thing I've been doing was I had written a book for myself and then I had done a lot of coaching for other writers and authors. I had been managing a couple of online platforms so I've done a ton of work with writers, and I do have a master's degree in teaching writing. So I just started reaching out to my friends who I knew more writers and authors and saying, like, can I help you map out your book? Can I help you do some editing? Can I do some writing for you? Um, and just started helping wherever I was needed. And, you know, anybody who had needed a little bit of help and had some money to pay me, I was on board. I was like, sign me up. So, and just building my own little thing. And once I got out of the... Um, like just needing a, a few dollars to get through the day. Once I got out of that mode, like crisis mode, that's the word that I've been looking for this whole time. <laughs> Once I got out of crisis mode, then I could start thinking about like, what am I really passionate about? What wasn't I doing before because I was working so hard to make him happy? Um, or because he had an idea for what he wanted me to be doing or what my life should look like or um, how, the kind of projects I should be taking on what wasn't I doing because I was so focused on that and I can start really thinking about what 
got me out of bed in the morning? What made me passionate? What am I excited about? What am I, who do I really want to help? Who am I here to help? What's, what is, what kind of impact or imprint do I want to make on the world? You know, um, we can't think about these things while we're in crisis mode. We just can't. It's massive hierarchy of needs. Like while you need food and if you're hungry, you're tired, your brain's not functioning correctly. Your blood sugar's off. Like you can't, if you're a refugee, you can't think about like what's my meaningful contribution to the world. You have to focus on getting your basic needs met. But the minute that your basic needs are met, I mean, this is part of why we do the work we do, right? Like we, so that we can get our basic Mm -hmm. needs met so that we can make higher contribution. Um, you know, I mean, that's just the goal of getting, that's the goal of getting there. It's like, for me, even when I think about rerouting my financial life, it's not so that I can be a millionaire. I, it, that's not, to me, it's, that's sort of like an empty goal. I don't have a strong desire to have millions and millions of dollars, other than the fact that when you have financial security, it really releases you to make a higher contribution to the world because you're not sitting around worried about how am I going to pay my rent next month or can I afford to pay these invoices for my business so I can do things now like I'm not a space and hire a girl who works for me full time and she helps me put on events and you know I'm, it's just it slowly opens up these opportunities for you to make more contribution so um, I, I can't remember how I got there other than just that once I was able to move out of crisis mode then I started thinking like what is it that really makes me me? What makes me tech? What makes me passionate? What gets me out of bed in the morning? And there was some freedom and some release in that to start making moves toward making that my my life. It's not an overnight kind of a thing. Like I feel like I used to think about it like there would be this moment that one day I would wake up and I would have my dream job. And to me, it's more like, can I push a little further tomorrow to be closer to... Um, making my greatest contribution to the world. Can I be a little closer to that tomorrow than I was today? That's kind of how I think about it now. And you know, you have to take these. Then you have these moments where you take these big risks. You make financial investments, or you try something new that you've never tried before. And you know, I mean, you never know if it's going to work. So it's a it's it's a roller coaster in the best way. Um, and there's not, there's no one moment where you have arrived. I think that's the biggest paradigm shift for me is that it's not like everybody's wanting to like tomorrow have a job that is their dream job. I don't think that there is any such thing. And that if we get stuck searching for that, we're going to drive ourselves crazy. Wow, that's that's huge. I've never heard anyone say that before. You know, the whole myth, a myth of basically the dream job thing is a myth. Um, yeah, I heard Krista Tippett. She does um, on the Being oh, podcast, which I love. Yeah. I heard her say, I think it was on Rob Bell's podcast. She was being interviewed. Mm. I think it, that was it. Yeah. And I heard her say to him that one of the myths of her her job is that um, people think she spends most of her time interviewing these brilliant minds, and she says actually she spends eighty percent of her time emailing, like the rest of us, you know. Like sometimes I feel like that's my job is I'm a professional emailer, and she was saying the same thing, you know. I mean, she spends most of her time like coordinating logistics and, um, mm. you know, emailing back and forth with her production team and making decisions and 
it's like that's what isn't that what all of us are doing it's is that super dreamy no but there are these moments where we get to bring the best version of ourselves into our work and we get to really show up and bring our skill set and then there are other moments where you empty the garbage and make the coffee and (laughs) respond to emails yeah yeah that's that's brilliant i love that i absolutely love that um so what kind of routines like um daily routines and practices did you start taking up i mean i've 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 seen you talk a lot about um daily writing and yoga and other things that you routines that you've practices that you've started each day which have helped you have a healthier life um so tell us a bit about tell us a bit about that yoga has been yoga's been a huge piece of that which is was accidental for me um i had always been a long distance runner and yoga for me was something that i thought of like the thing you would do on your off day to like get some stretching in (laughs) (laughs) and when i would watch people do yoga classes i would think like that looks so easy you know uh i'm like oh that's sweet they're doing some stretching anyway that goes to show you my arrogance really is the biggest that was my ego but um so then thankfully you know these moments our egos get smashed or we can say thankfully that happened my first time in the yoga class I made a huge gigantic pool of myself and um fell I tried to do a handstand and fell and fell onto everybody else's mat and knocked over a bunch of water bottles and it was made a big scene and it was really you know now it's funny at the time it was really super embarrassing but it was that needed to happen to me in my first yoga class but I the reason that I went to yoga was because my ex-husband said, we were, again, we had our own business at the time, and one of his common complaints about me was that I was distracted and unfocused and didn't get my work done. So he said, I've heard about yoga, it's really great for focus, I think you should start doing it. And we had our yoga studio right down the street from our house, so I walked down the street and signed up for my yoga. And secretly also, this was going on at the time too, not, it wasn't secret. It was it was uh, inside inside of myself. I wasn't admitting this to many people, if anyone. That we had also been trying to get pregnant, and I had also read that hot yoga was a great. Um, uh, I had read stories of many women who had struggled with infertility, and then would start a hot yoga practice and would become pregnant naturally. So I thought this is perfect. So I started to go to hot yoga on a regular basis, and um, it wasn't until way later. So this is September of 2015, and the marriage really ended November 19th of 2015. So this is two months before everything exploded and fell apart. So now when I look back, I don't, the irony is not lost on me at all that I went to yoga thinking what I wanted was to get pregnant when that was not what I wanted at all. And um, there's just, I mean, there's so many threads, there's so many directions I could go with that. But it wasn't until much later that I started reading the research about how effective body movement yoga is for getting us unstuck. It's so dramatically effective. Writing and yoga are the two things that are most effective for helping us get out of breaths. They help us rewire our neurological pathways, if, I mean, I could spend an hour explaining how our brains work to get us stuck in these ruts, whether it's a financial rut, it's a rut in a relationship, it's a, you know, um, stuck in a creative project, stuck in a bad habit, 
uh, stuck, you know, maybe you wish you could carve out a new habit. Maybe you feel like you, um, you know, wish you ate better or X, Y, Z, whatever it is, yoga and writing are the two most powerful ways according to research to help us forge your way forward. Break those bad habits, start a new habit. And it has to do with the brain science behind it. It's your neurological pathways, your brain is wired in such a way that it will automate your behavior. A huge percentage of our behavior, I can't remember, it's 80-something percent is automated, meaning that it's your limbic system, it's your um, animal brain that is compelling you to act in certain ways. So we think we're making all of these decisions every day about how to spend our money or where to spend our time or whatever, X, Y, Z. And so much of those decisions are automated based on really, really old stories. I mean, it's, most of that stuff is ingrained. The paradigms are built by the time we're very young. So most of those choices you think you're making for yourself, you're not actually making for yourself. And it makes sense why when you would try to change about habit or reroute an old habit, that you can willpower your way through it for a couple of days. That's your executive brain at work going, I know the right answer. I can choose the right. I can make the salad choice over the pizza choice. That's your executive brain. And then the minute you get tired, where your brain becomes fatigued, which happens every single day, by the end of the day, this is why at dinner, you're like, your executive brain is like, I know the salad is the better choice, and your limbic system completely takes over, and you choose the pizza. So the only hope that we have for getting out of those ruts is to change the automated part of our brain, not the executive part of our brain. And most of us will spend all of our energy and time focusing on altering the executive part of our brain, giving ourselves more information. Well, we don't need more information. What we need is to let the information sink into that more, mm. uh, the more primal part of our brain. So what helps us get the information from the executive brain to the limbic system is movement, writing, affirmations. It's, I mean, it's so simple. It's stupid. It's like, um, oh repeating an affirmation to yourself a hundred times in a day is actually more effective than, um, you know, writing a complicated uh, eating plan for yourself where you're only allowed to eat certain foods and not allowed to eat other foods. It's just wow. more effective for getting you actual results. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. Because I've actually... Well, I've got some habits, like all of us have, we've all got habits that we want to, that we want to break, haven't we, you know, um, but I've had a few that really, that have really been strongholds that I've really wanted to break for yeah. a long time, and I'm trying to do at the moment, and, yeah. and it just makes so much sense, because I'm actually, I mean, I've been doing a lot of mindset coaching anyway, trying to retrain my brain, and I'm fascinated by the brain, it's fascinating, but I've actually noticed that, what you're talking about, when yeah. I've been tired and I'm like, I can just, it's like, oh, I don't care about my totally. diet. I'm just going to eat You're anything. Like ice cream, ice cream, ice cream, ice cream. Yeah. Like, like, the other night. That's what your brain's going to do when it's tired, first of all. It wants, yeah. like, more calories. It's tired. Yeah. So, I mean, you think of the choices we make when we're really tired. It's, like, for stuff that's very primal. It's, like, ice cream, sex, alcohol. Like, <laughs> yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, it's, like, comfort me, comfort me, comfort me, comfort me. Yeah, so it's basically it kind of sense. retraining that part of the brain that, that is active when you're tired, so that when you're mm. tired you don't retreat into those mm. like old safe coping mechanisms. Totally, yeah. totally. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it is. I hesitate to say it's easy because it's not. It's a it's a long uphill climb 
I love the quote from Cheryl Strange. She talks about how forgiveness isn't the pretty boy sitting at the bar. It's the fat man you have to lug up a hill. <laughs> because it's such a great it's such a great visual for what this work is. I, it's like you're just lugging this thing up a hill. I mean, it's not it is not easy work. But the thing with it is, is it's so simple. It's so much more simple than we make it. And we try to do all these complicated things and jump through all the hoops when you know having one affirmation that you put on your mirror and you repeat it to yourself a hundred times in a day. And even, and then you take that affirmation and you combine that with a movement, with one single movement. It doesn't have to be, I mean, yoga is proven by research to be incredibly effective, but let's say you're totally resistant to doing yoga and you don't want to do it. Choose a movement. You know what I mean? If it's like, I had a friend who was working on telling the truth and she would pat her, her throat. She would say, I give myself permission to tell the truth. I give myself permission to ask for what I want. I give myself permission to ask for what I want. I give myself permission to ask for what I want. You can say that to yourself over and over again and add a movement to it, and that is going to be more effective than kicking your own ass every time you, you know, catch yourself people-pleasing or saying something you wish you didn't say, and then you leave the situation or the thing we usually do. Our brains do this to us as we go like, oh, you always do that, Ali. I can't believe you do that. You're such an idiot. You never ask for what you want. You never... It's like that, that's the stuff that our executive brain's been doing forever that's not working. Mm. Yeah. The brain, fascinating. I need to do a lot more research on the brain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is, there, is, there, is it, you talk about this in the book, book at all? Or is this more I don't write about the brain in the book at all. The brain is, is really heavily story. It's, there, there's really very little advice in the book at all. It's all just my story. Um, but I mean, my story. How do I say that? It makes it sound like you wouldn't want to read it. It's, um, I wanted the book to not be prescriptive. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Like come along on the journey with me, but I really, really needed it to not be prescriptive because I wrote it on intentionally on purpose in the middle of the mess. I feel like it's so easy for books to be these sanitized versions of our stories that we tell years after the, after the terrible thing happened. And what I really wanted this to book, this book to be was an honest story, an honest telling of what it actually feels like to be in the middle of big freaking heartbreak. Like when you feel like a crazy person, you don't know which way's up or which way's down. You're just making the best, the next best decision that you know how. I was drinking a lot. I was like, you know, I mean, it's a really honest story of me just trying to find my way. And um, I needed it to be that for the reader's sake. It's, it's hopeful, too, and by the end, I, I really do find my footing again, um, but in the middle of it, I don't sugarcoat any of it. I mean, it's all it's all in there. <laughs> is it safe to say that this book is, was kind of part of your healing process? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where the writing comes in, what you're talking about, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that, that was the other thing, too, is... Um, in addition to the research I've done on yoga and how profound that can be for getting us out of frets, the other tool that is most helpful for us is writing. And um, there are a few caveats to that. It's not any kind of writing. Academic writing doesn't do the same thing for us that creative writing does, but a creative writing process, especially writing about our own stories, can be remarkably effective for helping us answer our own questions, get out of our own way, get unstuck, in any area of our life and to forge a new way forward. Um, so those two, this goes all the way back to your original question, which, which was what are the practices you've implemented in your life? 
and two of them really are writing in yoga. And then affirmations, those are the three, I have a whole process that I've created for writing affirmations. I think not all affirmations aren't created equally, um, and it really is helpful if you have affirmations that are tailored to your particular circumstance. Mm. So, but those are the three most powerful things I've done to create change in my life. And they are the three tools I'm using to now teach the workshops that I'm teaching um, to help other people get unstuck wherever they're stuck. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, I mean, the only way out is through, isn't it? You can't. Oh. You can't kind of walk around. Like, and one of the things I find is people often try and deal with the symptoms of the problem rather than the actual problem. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. And the other thing about you saying the only way out is through is I think the other thing your executive brain will do is it knows the right answer, so it will parrot the right answer, even when it's not the true answer. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. Like, it knows... I feel like it will, it will, your executive brain will think it can skip the process of feeling pissed off, of doing the work of forgiveness, of feeling bitter and resentful. And like, that's all that, that is, that is the through. There's no skipping it. You can try, your executive brain will try to skip it. And what happens is, is your executive brain will do it. But then the minute you get tired, the truth, the reality that's in your cells is you've never actually worked through the anger, the bitterness, the frustration. I mean, I've watched tons of clients that I've worked with have this issue, women especially, because we don't give women a lot of permission to be angry in our culture. So what happens when you tell a woman she can't be angry and she represses her anger? Her executive brain goes, it's not nice to be angry. It's not mm-hmm. nice to be angry. It's not nice to be angry. It's not nice to be angry. She learns that her whole life. What happens is you get these 20 and 30-something-year-old women who are deeply, deeply depressed because all of their anger has been turned inward. So they've not given themselves permission to like work through the anger. You have to really get in the anger. You've got to like wait around in there for a while before you can come out the other side and go like the anger has transformed me into something else. And I feel now passionate and motivated and, you know, um, indignant in moments, but not angry, not bitter. It's transformed me into something else. If you don't go through that process, the anger turns on you, and it eats you alive from the inside. Yeah. So um, I've just watched this happen for so many people. I'm like, the reminder is there's just no skipping the process. You can pretend to skip the process, but you can't actually skip it. There's no such thing as a bypass. Absolutely. Nobody gets one. Agreed. Like We've all met these people. Even it happens in yoga where you meet these people who, like, um, one of my really lovely closest friends tells this story about going to a yoga teacher training mm. and they ask the go around the room and they ask everybody at the teacher training what is the thing that you want the most in the world and everybody goes around the room and they say things like world peace you know I want to, I want um, all beings to be happy and free and it's really sweet like it's so nice do you know what I mean that they would say something like that yeah and then then they get to one guy in the room who says, there are really only three things I want. I want a million dollars. I want more sex with my wife. And I want to teach black men to do yoga. And everybody in the room stops because he was just the most honest person in the room. He's the only one who's not going for the bypass. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, 
it's like, can we be honest about where we really are, what we really want? Can we show up in the fullness of our humanity? In doing that, somehow, strangely, we are transformed, transmuted into this really divine, beautiful force. Mm. But we can't have that without the other. Yeah. I, I completely agree. This is this is resonating so much with 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 my story. You know, um, yeah. You you can't you can't get around it. You know, I I had I had spent twenty years trying to get around my childhood trauma mm. with coping mechanisms. And, totally. Yeah. And it didn't work. You know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I see people who are a lot older than me, who are still carrying this stuff around, and will probably never be able to deal yeah. with it now because they're too they're, they're too old in a sense. You know that they they don't have the 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 energy that it, that it would take to to yeah. do that work, you know. And it's 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 sad in a way. Um, mm-hmm. um, but, I, I would argue you're never too old. However, it does, to, to your point, it does get harder and harder to let go. Uh, the longer, this is, this is what I tell people, if you think of the longer you've been telling yourself the same story, the longer you have to tell yourself the new story in order to rewrite it. So if the old story you've been telling yourself is um, uh, insert XYZ type of person is bad, like let's just say like, I mean, I grew up in a faith perspective that was like, Gay people are bad. So the longer you heard that story on repeat over and over and over again in your life, the longer you have to repeat the opposite story in order to reroute it, okay? So if you're 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 or 110, however many times in your life you've repeated to yourself, I'm ugly, I am a piece of shit, whatever. People, these are the things that we say to ourselves in our heads that we would never admit that we say out loud. Mm. Um, we would never admit it out loud, is what I'm trying to say. The longer you've said that to yourself in your head, the longer you have to say the opposite to yourself in order to get it to mm. get the story to stop manifesting itself. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's sense. why it's easier when you're 18. You're more pliable. You've told your story. You've told yourself the story fewer times, so it doesn't take quite as long to make the changes. When you're 30, it's going to be a little harder. When you're 40, it's going to be a little harder. When you're 50, it's going to be a little harder. But but it's never. It's never not worth the effort of surrender. <laughs> yeah, and you know, you're living proof in a sense, you know, because that's kind of what you've done, you know. Um, it's kind of retold your own story and started yeah. a new story, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so here's the cool thing, too, I want to just add this really fast, that there's this moment, I think, in our 20s and 30s when we get to choose for the first time how we want to tell our stories as adults, because in a way, when you're a child, your story's handed to you. It's spoken over you, and you don't have a ton of control over that. You're born into this family. You're, your parents, some of, most of our parents, I would argue, are pretty well-meaning, and some of them maybe aren't well-meaning. But even well-meaning parents hand you stories that you never asked for or wanted in the first place. Mm. Um, maybe your parents really wanted you to be a lawyer or a doctor or whatever, and you wanted to be a painter. That's mm. just one example. But maybe, you know, I don't know. I could fill in a thousand other examples. But so then you have these moments, these giant upturns in your life, like my divorce or whatever, where because of the shock to your system, you get to go, okay, wait a second. Now I see that how this old story that was spoken over me is being played out in my life, and I get to decide how I want to write the story as a grown-up. 
And I get to take accountability and responsibility for my own actions and for my own life for the first time. So it's this really beautiful moment where you get to, mm-hmm. like, you get to have the vision. Like, I get to decide what I want my life to look like. I, it doesn't have to be, I don't have to take the one that was handed to me. Yeah, that's fantastic. That is, I think that's a really good way to end, actually, in a way. You know, that we don't have to take the the stories that we've been, that other people have told for us or that we've told ourselves for for, for too long that have been unhealthy. We can choose something different and we have the power, the agency to to do that. Um, and um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to that book coming out. Um, tell us a bit about when it comes out and how people can get it and all that kind of thing. It's available for pre-order currently. You can order it at indestructiblebook.com or on my website, alisonfallon.com. And it will be available in, in all retail stores in the fall. I think November 20th is the day that it's available in retail stores. Um, and the physical book, so if you pre-order now, the physical book gets here April 9th. So it will be shipped to you by that week or the following week if you will pre-order through my website. So um, I love when people pre-order through my website. It's great. It's, you know, it's always really good for the author when you order there versus other places. But obviously, if you would rather order through Amazon or another uh, vendor, then you can do that as soon as it's available in November. Awesome. awesome. And one other resource that I would love to let people know about, if it's okay, Mm, yeah, I'm Perfect. hosting an event in Nashville, which I know most people probably, most of your listeners probably won't be able to make it to Nashville on April 14th, but I'm hosting an event in Nashville where I'm teaching a process to get unstuck in any area of your life like we talked about. So using those three tools, writing, movement, and affirmations. The, the great part about this is I'm making a digital package available, meaning you can get the teachings on video and I'll send you all of the little goodies and giveaways that I'm giving away at the event. So copy my book, t-shirt, a couple of other things in a little gift package to your house. Um, and it'll come directly to your door. So if you're interested in learning the process that I've used to get unstuck and have worked with dozens of clients to help them do this too. And I have tons of friends who are going to talk about their experience with using the same process. Mm. If you're interested in learning about that, you can grab that ticket at um, imindestructible.com so thanks for so thanks for listening everyone I hope this has inspired you as much as it inspired me um, and um, have a great week <laughs>